Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Between 1930 and 1933, over 1.5 a quarter of Kazakhstan's population perished in famine caused by Soviet collectivization and a campaign to transform the Kazakh nation. Yet when we think of famine in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, the story of the Kazakh famine remains mostly hidden from view. Sarah Cameron's book, The Hungry Step, is one of the few to tell this brutal story and its devastating consequences for Kazakh society, and the way Stalinist violence created Soviet Kazakhstan and forged a new Kazakh identity. Sarah Cameron is an assistant professor in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union at the University of Maryland. She's the author of The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan, published by Cornell University Press. I also want to say that I've provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website in case you want to read it. Here's Sarah Cameron. So you have uh, this new uh, book, The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan. And it's one of the few studies on the famine in Kazakhstan. And I thought, wait, you know, it's it's really interesting that such a, a major event in Stalinism has been relegated to to the margins and there hasn't been a lot of work on it. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about why has the Kazakh famine been so marginalized in the history of Stalinism? Thanks for that question. It's something actually I've thought a lot about uh, as I worked on the project. You know, how could such a big event uh, in which a million and a half people die, how could it just get lost from our understanding of Soviet history? Um, I think it boils down to a couple of reasons. First is we tend to think of, or at least in, in the U.S., in the West, we often tend to categorize Soviet history as European history. Uh, and I think to a large extent, Soviet history uh, the history of Stalinism, it is yet to incorporate the Soviet Union's Asian half. And uh, I think the Kazakh famine is just actually one illustration of how we've neglected the eastern half of the Soviet Union. And if we if we look at the history of the Soviet East, I think we can find examples of other events that are really missing uh, from, from our understanding, uh, and that in turn might challenge uh, our understanding of what Soviet history and what Stalinism was. Uh, I think another reason I would point to would be um, in the West, um, the famine, the period of famine and collectivization has become closely associated with uh, the Ukrainian, um, the Ukrainian famine, uh, in which uh, roughly uh, 3.9 million Ukrainians died. Uh, 
Uh, and this has become in large, this has happened in large part uh, due to the efforts of uh, the Ukrainian diaspora. And there has been a very long running and polemical debate uh, surrounding the Ukrainian famine over the question of whether Stalin specifically used famine to target Ukrainians as an ethnic group. So in the West, uh, because of the particular very polemical nature of this debate, it has come to seem that uh, famine, as it occurred in the Soviet Union during collectivization, was exclusively a Ukrainian event. And a lot of the places where um, you know famine, uh, of course, uh, afflicted Kazakhstan, as I'm sure we'll discuss in more depth, uh, but it also afflicted parts of the Russian heartland and a number of Russian peasants died. Um, in turn, I think also what's happened is some Ukrainians, uh, in part to uh, bolster their claims uh, that this was an event uh, directed against, uh, specifically against Ukrainians, they have actually sought to marginalize uh, the fact that famine occurred uh, in other parts of the Soviet Union. So um, the broader story, in a sense, uh, has been lost. Uh, I think the third reason I would point to is a kind of uh, broader world historical re reason, and that is uh, the way that the um, uh, stories of nomadic peoples uh, have been marginalized. Uh, the Kazakhs um, were uh, pastoral nomads prior to this famine. Uh, it's, of course, much more difficult to still tell the stories of nomadic peoples. Uh, they leave much fewer sources in the written record, uh, and the sources that we do have about them are often filled with biases and assumptions. Uh, and often when violence is committed against nomadic peoples, it's kind of rationalized as part of a civilizing process. I mean, this is this is the way the Soviets themselves uh, rationalized what happened. And, and I think that understanding has in some parts crept into the literature that this was in some way a kind of natural uh, event. Um, but in that sense, I think the Kazakh famine is in part part of a, a larger global story of our, our failure to really tell the stories of uh, of what happened to no nomadic pe peoples and the violence committed against them. And, and I think I would point, um, you know, as just one example of that um, in the U.S., our own difficulties of, of coming to terms with um, uh, the scale of the crimes committed against Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of, of you know, Stephen Sable's wonderful book that compares the Kazakh and, and uh, Native American – Native American experience in the United States, which I saw – I found such a refreshing book because it does speak to this, you know, putting that experience of, say, nomads and, you know, in his case, he was dealing mostly with Imperial Russia – but within a, a larger, you know, global context of what happens to nomadic peoples, you know, really refreshing because it it also, you know, makes it, it removes the exceptionalism of the Russian slash Soviet case in dealing with these people. So, um, so how would you it, it, to talk a little bit about more about the kind of more global context? So where would you how do you put the the Kazakh experience? Or how would you put the Kazakh experience in a larger frame of the historical experience of nomadic peoples in other parts of the world? Well, uh, I mean, I think in the 20s, and we usually think of the 1920s or 1930s as a period where, uh, you know, the, the era of nomadic peoples has ended. <laughs> but actually, that's really not true. Um, if 
um, again, if, if we expand the story of Soviet history to its Asian periphery, we see that actually uh, the Soviets had um, similar problems to a number of states in the same uh, the same time period. So um, in Iran, for instance, um, they are trying to deal at this point with uh, with nomadic peoples, uh, with, uh, you know, the British Empire uh, in parts of uh, of the Middle East. But um, I think that the Soviets took um, the idea of uh, nation building and the idea of, uh, quote unquote, modernizing these people uh, a lot more seriously than than some of these other states did. And I think that in turn, it partly explains the, the, the very, very catastrophic nature of, uh, of what happened. No, we'll get to this, uh, the Soviet, uh, your emphasis on nation building as one of the, the driving aspects of the fan. But first, I want to I want to turn back to Ukraine a bit, because, you know, the history of the famine in Ukraine, which you've already spoken a bit about, it really does serve as a constant reference point for your story. And it's and it's not surprising, because, as you said, the Ukrainian story has dominated uh, how we think about famine in during collectivization of agriculture. So. How do you how do you compare both of these events, the Kazakh and and the Ukrainian famines? So I guess the first thing I would say is that the book is not a full fledged comparison of the two, um, because in 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 part it, as I discovered, it's actually very difficult to compare the two because we have such an information imbalance. We know so much more uh, about the Ukrainian famine than we do about the Kazakh famine, and. Um, you know, with my book, it became clear to me um, that there were certain questions I could answer and certain questions I, I can't. And it's a it's a topic that deserves much, much more study. Um, but nevertheless, I think uh, there are few conclusions um, that are possible. Um, first is that it's often been one of the sort of central claims of a lot of the those who claim uh, that the, the the Ukrainian famine was targeted specifically against Ukrainians is that the regime's treatment of starving Ukrainians was <clears throat> uniquely brutal. But if we look at the Kazakh case, we really see that this is not true. Uh, that many tactics that, you know, uh, scholars have argued that were distinctive features of the Ukrainian famine, by this I mean uh, the closure of borders so that the starving could not flee, the expulsion of famine refugees from cities, uh, the blacklisting, by that I mean a, uh, it's a term for basically when there were lockdowns placed on districts, so people were essentially trapped in zones of death where you couldn't get any food. These were all deployed against starving Kazakhs. Um, and then if we look at it, there are also acts of, uh, ex uh, Moscow con commits acts of extreme cruelty in Kazakhstan that really don't have any equal in Ukraine. By this, I mean the slaughter of thousands of Kazakhs on the Sino-Kazakh border, uh, the expulsion of people to con uh, uh, of Kazakhs from their pasture lands to construct a forced labor camp. Um, and in many respects, uh, the Kazakh famine was more destructive, actually. Uh, you know, you might argue that because it brings about this immense and very painful far-reaching cultural transformation, which is the loss of, of Kazakhs' nomadic way of life. And, and there's no clear parallel to that in Ukraine. Um, and, and Kazakh, um, it's not often known, but actually Kazakhs, uh, had the highest loss uh, of life percentage-wise as a group of, of any group uh, in the Soviet Union during this period. So I, I think if, if we take a step back, we see basically that once you put the Kazakh famine into the picture, that some existing explanations for the Ukrainian famine really don't hold. Uh, 
that uh, uh, it's important that the Kazakh famine begins prior to the Ukrainian famine. They're all part of this this onslaught of of uh, uh, the first five year plan, but the Kazakh famine begins roughly a year earlier. Um, so you know those arguments that claim those. Uh, explanations for the Ukrainian famine that uh, argue that the regime's use of tactics such as border closures, that this marked a new and distinctive phase in its treatment of national groups. That's not true, because we see the regime using those same tactics in Kazakhstan prior to the Ukrainian case. Uh, and in fact, more what I think what happens if we if we put the Kazakh famine and the Ukrainian famine into the picture together is that we see um, that there was actually a circulation of tactics that uh, we can see um, policy between East and West actually influencing each other. And we can see that um, there were certain strategies that they used in Kazakhstan um, that were explicitly modeled uh, upon those used uh, against uh, starving Ukrainians. I mean, one key difference, obviously, in, the, in these two famines is that um, Ukrainians had a historically troubled relationship with the regime uh, and Kazakhs didn't. Uh, you know, there's lots of quotes where uh, I don't think Moscow or Stalin had a particular understanding or idea of what who the Kazakhs were. <laughs> they often confuse them with other people. Uh, but I really don't see that bored out in any difference in policy in how these two groups were treated. Uh, that we also see crackdowns on native cadres in the Kazakh case. Uh, we also see um, that agricultural failures are connected to questions of, of national culture in Kazakhstan and in Ukraine. So I think more broadly, that should make us you know, rethink some of the uh, assumptions that we've made about uh, state-sponsored violence against particular ethnic groups and attitudes in the Soviet state. And and also another big thing, and as you as you mentioned earlier, and that is that this is part of a nation building process, right? This is part of the Soviet nationality policy to reshape the Kazakh people into a nation. So, and and this is one of the things that you you really focus on is that the famine is is a consequence of of Soviet nation making and Soviet modernization. So so how are these two? to large processes connected to the famine. As you state, these are the two frameworks, uh, essentially, that I use to, to, to guide my study. Um, and I look at the Soviet uh, process uh, of modernization, and I also look at their process of nation-making. And by that, I mean uh, their process of, of trying to make uh, Kazakhs into a modern uh, Soviet uh, nationality. Um, and I look at the ways these projects were sometimes in tension with, with one another and the ways that sometimes they, they actually worked uh, together. Um, so there's a couple kind of big, um, big takeaways, uh, I would say, from uh, the project for our understanding of, of Soviet nation making and Soviet modernization. Uh, well, first is that I really stress the centrality of, of nation making uh, to the Soviet project. I I think that it's really difficult to, to, to understand uh, the Soviet project and the outcome of the famine uh, without uh, um, examining that. Uh, and I show throughout the famine how the regime's attempts at nation making could be both progressive but also very destructive. That violence, we tend to think of violence uh, committed against different ethnic groups as kind of a shift away from nation making. But in reality, uh, in a lot of what happens in the Kazakh case, we can see it as an attempt to consolidate identities. So, for instance, when Kazakhs flee across the border to China, 
uh, thousands of them are, are, are slaughtered. This is, of course, motivated by security concerns in part, this idea that enemies are crossing across borders. But uh, authorities also used a central tenet of Soviet nation making the idea that nationality is connected to territory to kind of underpin and to justify this shift. Um, and, you know, I, the literature has presented kind of Soviet nation making in a way as, as a kind of palliative um, uh, measure, something that they could use to present uh, core policies such as industrialization in a more attractive light, kind of something distinct from that. Uh, of, of the process of, of industrialization. But I try to show actually how, really, if you look at it on the ground, the two are very closely intertwined. And, and this idea of nation-making as a palliative measure is, is not something that local officials thought about. They, they didn't think about it that way. They thought of the two as intertwined. So the end result of, uh, of the famine, as I argue in the book, uh, is um, the creation of a new Kazakh national identity, um, but ultimately, nation-making was, in some senses, Soviet nation-making was partially successful. They weren't able to eliminate some pre-existing sources of identity, um, you know, like uh, Kazakhs' allegiances to clans. Uh, and the project of Soviet modernization um, was probably, in many senses, far less successful. Uh, they lose something like 90% of Kazakhs' livestock herds over the course of the famine, take some decades to bring it up uh, to their formal levels, uh, former levels. And, um, you know, even basic things like Almaty is still lit by uh, Almaty uh, being the capital of, of Soviet Kazakhstan, Alma-Ata, as it was referred to at the time, uh, is still lit by kerosene lamps. It doesn't have electricity. Um, so I think this makes us think very differently about the nature of Soviet modernization in the interwar period. And, you know, some of the clear differences between East and West in terms of what happens. So what was the, let's step back a bit and, and talk about what was the situation in Kazakhstan for Kazakhs before 1928? Sure. So um, it was really important. I felt that the story of the famine as I got into it was not just a Soviet story, uh, that it was really important to bring um, the history of the Russian Empire's interactions uh, with this region into the story. So um, in the book, I uh, look at the last decades of Russian imperial rule uh, over the Kazakh steppe, particularly uh, this period of massive peasant settlement of the Kazakh steppe, when something like a million and a half peasants from uh, European Russia settle it, uh, they create um, important uh, changes to uh, the steppes. So this period of massive, massive peasant settlement um, provokes really important changes to Kazakhs' uh, nomadic way of, way of life. Uh, um, it provokes important demographic changes. This had been a, a, a region populated largely by Turkic Muslim-speaking peoples. Um, sorry, Muslim Turkic speaking peoples, excuse me. Uh, and um, I, I show the ways that this peasant settlement provoked really important changes to Kazakhs uh, diet uh, and migration routes. It didn't eliminate pastoral nomadism. Um, this was still a viable way for, for a, a way of life for many Kazakhs. Uh, but um, these changes made Kazakhs far more susceptible to famine and and these changes ultimately intensified uh, the scale of the famine when, when the Soviet regime intervened. So um, obviously the famine would not have happened without a collectivization, but these changes made it much, much more likely. Uh, and 
one other point is I, I also change. So obviously the big, the big change in the story is 1928, uh, when the kind of assault, uh, we can say against Kazakh nomadic society begins. But I also change, uh, chart in the book, uh, the Soviets debates about pastoral nomadism. They had a lot of really interesting debates in the twenties, uh, about what to do about it, how, and if it fit into, um, uh, socialist style modernity. It's something I take uh, the chapter of one of my uh, chapter of one of my books is entitled, um, can you get to socialism by camel? Um, <laughs> I take that, I take that, um, uh, kind of amusing title from actually a joke that was circulated at the time by a, a local official who said, you know, um, he, he was criticizing some of the Soviet policies, a Kazakh official and saying, you know, these seem like pie in the sky ideas for, the, for, for, for this place. Uh, and he said, you know, you can't get to socialism by camel. Um, <laughs> but he had a really good point, which is that this was a region that didn't and a people and a way of life that did not fit into uh, kind of stand, the, the, the Marxist-Leninist categories that they import, that the Soviets imported with them. So I look at that and I look at the, the reasons why um, ultimately the Soviets, uh, the pro-nomadism strain was actually dominant for a long period of time. Uh, but I look at the reasons why it eventually lost out. Uh, and then they began this uh, assault against nomadic life in 28. Yeah, let's talk about that because uh, the, the the 1928 pivot because, you know, as you point out and, and others have point out, you know, the rev the revolution, you know, capital R revolution is really slow to come to a Central Asia in terms of a, a, a transformative aspect uh, in, in terms of upsetting elites, upsetting, you know, um, social economic relationships. Uh, you know, and this is something I, of course, I, I'm sure you do too. You, you deal with your, with your students who think you have 1917 and all of a sudden they think they're socialism. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so what is, uh, what you call Kazakhstan's Little October? So, um, the Little October is actually, it's not my term. It's a term that was used, uh, although it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting term, which I try to probe uh, and explain. It was a term used by, uh, the leader of Kazakhstan at the time, Philippe Goloshokin. Um, he, uh, becomes a party secretary of Kazakhstan in 1925. Uh, and basically when he gets there in 20, uh, so by 1928, after, some other uh, programs to transform the, the, the Kazakh steppe uh, have, uh, have failed in many senses. Um, basically, Kazakhstan declares that the Kazakh Aul, um, the Kazakh Aul being the nomadic encampment, uh, that it had yet to undergo the October Revolution. This is quite a startling statement, you know, that, um, that we still have to carry out an October Revolution in the steppe. Uh, and by that, he means that, um, it, that the social revolution hasn't occurred. So what essentially the party tries to do at this point, uh, and it's part of this, as I mentioned, there were uh, debates about what to do with nomadism. Uh, eventually, they decide um, to attack nomadism, that it's not something compatible with socialist style modernity. So the Little October is part of this broader shift towards an assault against nomadism. And what they do is they go out and they basically try to appropriate uh, livestock and property from wealthy Kazakh elites. Uh, who are supposedly exploiting their kin members, um, and um, this this it, basically the, the theory being that they needed to carry out a social revolution from above in order for Kazakhs uh, to have their own 1917 uh, and to expedite the process of class uh, differentiation in the in the Kazakh nomadic encampment. Um, 
what happens by the end of 1928 is many Kazakhs uh, begin to suffer from hunger, famine begins. Uh, and I try to, that campaign itself is, is actually pretty interesting. Uh, I spend a lot of time on it uh, in the book and I try to show uh, one of the more interesting features of it was that um, Moscow really empowered and encouraged Kazakhs to carry it out themselves, uh, which, um, you know, we often think of, of violence committed against ethnic groups uh, in the Soviet cases carried out by outsiders. I show how this was a really insider style campaign. Yeah, this is I, I just want to let me interrupt here because this is one of the things I wanted to ask is that, you know, if you look at uh, kind of statistics on how many, you know, Bolsheviks, broadly speaking, are out there in the country, it's very few and far between. So where did the the, the sheer manpower come from to engage in this process? So, Yeah, that's part of the problem. Uh, I mean, I think their reliance on Kazakh cadres, it was, um, uh, as I tried to flesh out in the book, it was both a a practical and an ideological decision. So on a practical level, they simply do not have uh, the boots on the ground. They don't have the people here. Uh, they need Kazakh uh, participation. And, and on an ideological level, uh, going back to this idea of nation-making, um, that was a process that was supposed to be participatory. Kazakhs were supposed to participate in it. This was the, 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 this little October was a profound moment, uh, they believed, uh, as Moscow framed it, a profound moment of social and national transformation, right? You're, 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 you're getting rid of the exploiters. And so they believed, you know, that that had to be done uh, by Kazakhs themselves. But in in point of fact, it, it, it was a way, um, in some senses, to, to try and destroy Kazakh society from within. That's what they were trying to do. Now, collectivization, uh, like, like the elsewhere in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, Kazakhstan undergoes collectivization, but it's, it's far different than what you would find, say, certainly in Ukraine and the other kind of, you know, black earth regions of the country. It, it's different than, say, in the far north. Uh, and one of the the big differences, of course, is that uh, Kazakhs aren't sedentary population. They're nomads and they don't necessarily engage in a lot of agriculture either. They're mostly dealing with uh, animal herding and animal husbandry. So uh, what does collectivization look like uh, on the ground in Kazakhstan? So uh, to back up a little bit, when these peasant settlers arrive in Kazakhstan uh, in uh, the last decades of the Russian Empire, uh, they make northern Kazakhstan in particular into, uh, at that point, the northern Kazakh steppe into a really important grain growing region. Uh, and so um, the party, when they look at Kazakhstan as part of collectivization, um, the northern grain growing re region of Kazakhstan was designated as one of the party's leaders in the collectivization effort. One of the first regions of Kazakhstan uh, that was supposed to be, or first regions of the Soviet Union that was supposed to be fully collectivized. Uh, but in point of fact, um, there's not really a differentiation within Kazakhstan. Uh, and so a lot of regions that were not supposed to be part of this first wave effort that were supposed to be collectivized at a slower pace uh, also end up being collectivized. And that includes, uh, you know, regions that were entirely nomadic. Uh, and so really what collectivization looks like in many senses is massive animal her roundups of herds. Um, Centerization, which you know, the settlement of nomadic peoples, was something that was supposed to occur prior to collectivization in in the party's minds. Um, 
But what they begin to push at this period is um, centralization, what a, a slogan they called centralization on the basis of full collectivization. Uh, so eventually, basically the centralization process, uh, the, the formal uh, official process, the party's of, uh, official process of centralization isn't very effective. There are not a whole lot of resources devoted to it. But in point of fact, what happens is that collectivization itself is so destructive in Kazakhs' loss of, of animal herds. Kazakhs also, um, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, uh, if you look at it on a, on a map, is actually a region that's very complicated in terms of where you can grow grain and where you can't. Uh, and so, um, but the party actually uh, assessed some grain procurements on nomadic regions. So Kazakhs then in turn are, uh, many of them are actually forced to sell off their animal herds, to buy grain, to meet these procurements. Uh, and uh, so Kazakhs animal herds begin to plummet for many, many reasons. And so many Kazakhs are become destitute. They become forced to sedentarize uh, due to the effects of, uh, of uh, collectivization. Um, I think another way that um, collectivization looks a bit different uh, in, in the Kazakh case, especially as the famine uh, uh, gets going, is the, the crucial role played by disease. So if we look at uh, the Soviet Union's West, uh, once famine gets going, uh, most people who die, die of actual starvation. But in the Kazakh steppe, in part because the level of modern uh, medical services uh, is lower, uh, we see that many uh, Kazakhs actually die of, of hunger-induced uh, diseases. Do you also have a, a similar phenomena that you find in the Western parts of the Soviet Union of, of self-dequalization? Are, are uh, Kazakhs also to avoid being – first off, are they being dequalized and, and what or whatever the local variant of that is? And do you get a similar kind of sl slaughtering of uh, their, their animal stock to avoid being dequalized? Oh, sure. I mean, I think in that sense, the story is quite similar to the Soviet Union's West. And so there is this massive livestock drop, as I mentioned at the beginning, 90 percent of Kazakhs animal herds die over the course of the famine. And, and that's worth further driving home because Kazakhstan is the Soviet Union's most important livestock base. <laughs> but uh, there are many reasons for that livestock drop. Uh, but one um, a, a, a partial reason uh, for it is that um, yes, many Kazakhs um, slaughtered their their animal herds to avoid being uh, you know to avoid being categorized as a buy. That's the term, uh, the local term that was used for uh, you know used used to refer to someone who could be considered a, a Kazakh kulak essentially and an exploiter. Um, many Kazakhs, to avoid confiscation, uh, flee to different parts of Kazakhstan. Many, of course, flee across the border to China. And uh, the Sino-Kazakh border is a really important, important part of the story of, of this Kazakh famine, what ends up happening there. Um, and also the fact that um, Xinjiang, the western province of China, is uh, an area that's historically, culturally, and environmentally linked to the Kazakh steppe. And it's where um, there's a large Kazakh population. So many Kazakhs flee across the border uh, to evade confiscation. Um, and, and, um, and it's in part this cross-border traffic uh, that, that leads to this, this crackdown midway through. And as I mentioned, thousands of Kazakhs are killed. Hey, dear listeners. 
I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRV podcast and the support that many of you have given to the show. This podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. You enjoy the interviews, and I know some of my academic friends even use the podcast in their courses. I don't need to name names. You know who you are. I don't put any of these podcasts behind paywalls, and I never will because I don't believe the education I try to bring about Eurasian politics, history, and culture should be under lock and key. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. I also want to make some more swag in addition to the refrigerator magnets and, sh and shot glasses that I have available for patrons. And the costs of all this are on top of paying for the internet hosting, a website, equipment, a recording service, and the time to prepare, edit, and produce a show every week. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. Like I always say in every episode, the SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. It just isn't. So if you'd like some of those things too, here's what you can do. Become a patron. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog and donate $5 or more a month. It's a very small amount to ask for. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. The other thing that you note, too, is the role of the environment, because I know that there's been some work. Um, I think Mark Tauger is probably the one who's done the most work on the role of, say, precipitation and uh, wheat disease and, and the impact of this on the causes of the, Ukraine, the bad harvest and, and then the Ukrainian famine. How does the environment play in, in Kazakhstan? Sure. So I think the first thing that has to be said is that the environment of the Kazakh steppe is very different uh, than that of, of the Soviet Union's West. Uh, so it was very arid uh, and um, it was also a very arid region and rainfall patterns were very unstable. And by that, I mean that they could really shift dramatically from year to year. Um, that, and in turn, actually, the distribution of good quality soils could also shift. A lot of them could become salinated over time. Um, things like uh, winds, hot, dry winds that swept the step, step could change uh, uh, the shape and size of bodies of water. Um, and so one of the things I try to trace in the book is that this was a, a landscape. Um, it's not only the people who were very unfamiliar um, to Soviet experts you know, within their Marxist-Leninist worldview. It was also the landscape. And they didn't really understand, you know, um, how, how could you develop this landscape? Could you make it into an agrarian region? Uh, and, and, and this is why I think in part, you know, it's really important to bring the, the Russian imperial angle of the story in because this was a debate that actually, of course, had begun in the Russian imperial era. You know, could they make it into an agrarian region? Um, and um, 
uh, as I trace throughout the famine, uh, or that that the what I term the ecological instability of this region. By that I mean um, the the fact that you could get a really great harvest one year, but you could have a disastrous harvest the next because of these very these these uh, fluctuating periods of rainfall. Um, that that this posed a, a challenge to, to Marxist-Leninist ideas of economic development, which believe that, you know, you, you've got steady and increasing, you know, increasing yields year after year. Um, and the Soviets were explicitly warned uh, by experts, don't make this in, in these debates in the 20s, don't make this area into an agrarian region. Um, they also could look back to the history of the Russian Empire's efforts in this region. Uh, at some points, peasant settlement was so disastrous because there was no rainfall that, that the Russian Empire actually had to close peasant settlement uh, to the Kazakh steppe, but they decided, well, uh, we are, uh, you know, a socialist state. We can conquer the environment. We can we can conquer the steppe. So they pushed forward, uh, and in fact, uh, at one point in the famine, um, weather uh, does play a role, and this is the drought of uh, in the summer of 1931 um, that intensifies uh, the effects uh, of the famine. By saying that weather played a role, I'm not meaning to get the Soviets off the hook here. And, and I think that's also a way that I think there's sort of been a false dichotomy a little bit in the literature that, you know, either it was politics or it's the weather. I, I'm showing you I'm trying to show how the weather is intimately connected to politics and that this is something the Soviets anticipated was actually going to happen. They were warned. Um, and I also trace um, one more point in the environment, which is that um that the Soviets were actually never able to, to conquer the Kazakh steppe, to completely control the environment. Uh, we see this throughout the famine. We see it in the later history of, of their incursions uh, into the region with the Virgin Lands program, uh, that, that the Kazakh steppe is, uh, you know, a, a really, really difficult area to make into an agrarian region. Um, and I think my book connects to a lot of uh, you know, recent literature on um, the idea that uh, that environmental factors shape the nature of, of Soviet development, that we have to really look closely at the environment to understand um, how how Soviet development progressed. So in, in bringing all of this together, what were the causes, the concrete causes to the famine? Sure. So the most important cause is collectivization, obviously. Uh, and collectivization was accompanied by forced meat and grain procurements, uh, and um, as I mentioned, um, Kazakhs didn't uh, didn't tend to to grow grain, um, but it was you know as nomads, uh, the basis of their diet uh, or the basis of, the, of their way of life was herding uh, herding animals. Um, but um, they were often forced to meet onerous grain procurements uh, to sell off their livestock and so on. Um, I see the legacies of Russian imperial rule as a contributing factor, you know, the ways that they changed nomadic life due to this peasant settlement. It's not the cause. Uh, famine wouldn't have happened without the Soviet regime's uh, interventions, but it does make, um, uh, does make Kazakhs more susceptible to famine. Uh, drought, as I already mentioned, in the summer of 31, that intensifies things. Uh, and finally, I think I would say that um, the Kazakh... Um, Kazakh steppe's underdevelopment plays a role. This was something the Soviets were warned about. They were warned, okay, um, you know, if uh, the, prior to the famine, they were warned and specifically told, you know, 
that if you don't do something to raise the level of modern medical services here, if an epidemic hits the step, it could have the makings of a perfect storm. Uh, and But they don't do anything about it. Uh, one cause that I don't, sometimes it's sort of, um, it, it's sometimes said that, oh, the Kazakh famine was caused by sedentarization. And I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's an accurate characteris- um, you know, characterization of what happens. Uh, so first, sedentarization, official sedentarization programs are, are really ineffective. They don't work. The, the regime doesn't put a lot of money into it. Um, sedentarization, in effect, becomes a result of collectivization. Kazakhs are so impoverished uh, that by collectivization that they eventually have to settle. But if you look at what sedentarization itself is not a causal factor, right? You don't starve necessarily because you're sedentarized. You starve because people take away your, your food or your grain or, or, or there's no harvest, these sorts of things. So that's why I think I, I'm not sure that really makes sense as a, as a causal factor in the yeah, famine. It was eventually, yeah, it was a result for sure. Yeah. Now, you know, and, and as you, you spoken a little bit about in, in the beginning of our conversation, most of our understandings of Stalinism and Stalinist violence come from the central parts of the Soviet Union. And you've shown in, in, in comparison to the Ukrainian famine, a lot of the similar methods that we see in Ukraine, you can also find in Kazakhstan. But at the same time, you know, you're also stressing that looking at the Soviet Union from the east, from Central Asia, also gives you a different angle on things. So how does Stalinism look from the Kazakh experience? How, did, how, how, would you, how would you reframe our understanding or add to our understanding of what Stalinism is? Sure. So um, one, of the, one of the big ways I try to un- reframe our understanding of what Stalinism is, is I try to look at how Soviet power looks really different on the ground in this place. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes I think we really tend to put a lot of emphasis on the Soviet regime's coercive strength and this almighty regime and but if you look at it in places like Kazakhstan, which is really distant from Moscow, uh, that, you know, for instance, it, it takes something like 30 or 40 days for a newspaper just to reach um, uh, the republic's capital, uh, that um, the nature of the Soviet state looks looks quite different, um, that really um, this is a state that in some parts of, of the Kazakh steppe was really frail or was actually even entirely absent. So uh, in one of, uh, one of my chapters, I... I look at um, the uh, Mangishlak Peninsula in western Kazakhstan, and I trace uh, actually throughout the entire much of the 1920s, this was run by this guy who essentially ran it as his own fiefdom, you know, <laughs> um, and had very little to do with uh, with the, the Soviet regime. So I think that's that's one way that it it changes our view. It changes our view of I think of what Soviet power looked like. Um, I think. Uh, it also makes us think differently about um, the spectrum of, of violence under Stalin. Um, you know, uh, a lot of books have, have placed a lot of emphasis on the Soviet Union's West uh, in the genealogy of Stalinist violence. Uh, I'm thinking uh, particularly here of, say, uh, Bloodlands, but um, Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands. But, you know, if we if we look here, we see that the Soviet East also generates really important practices of social control uh, and that you know, we can see that in some ways these these tactics of population management uh, were uh, exchanged between uh, between East and West. Now, at the end of your book, 
you you delve into the genocide question. Um, and and I'm assuming uh, it's because one the the level of catastrophe and violence, and as you said, the Kazakhs experience a very high percentage of death as a result than in than other ethnic groups in in Stalinism. Um, and of course, the whole question of genocide kind of hovers over the debate about the Ukrainian famine. And Kazakhs, many Kazakhs refer to it themselves as a genocide. Ah, and okay, and many Kazakhs themselves refer to it as genocide. So can we consider the Kazakh famine an act of genocide? So uh, the question of whether we consider a genocide really depends on what definition we're using. There are many definitions of genocide. So when you call something a genocide, you have to be really clear uh, on what definition you're using. Um, I would argue that uh, the Kazakh famine does not fit the UN definition of genocide, which is the legal definition uh, of genocide. Uh, that the, the UN definition is focused very much on, um, quote, an in, to destroy uh, an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. Um, and I do not think that what we see here uh, is the regime's intent to destroy Kazakhs as an ethnic group. I have not found evidence of specific ethnic targeting uh, by Moscow. More what we see, I think, is their attempts uh, to destroy um, Kazakh culture. Uh, so I think, so I don't think that Kazakh famine fits the UN definition, but if we turn to broader definitions of genocide, um, the original uh, Raphael Lemkin, who, who formulated the definition, um, and, and the UN, uh, UN eventually takes it, hammers it into another meaning. Uh, if we use Lemkin's original definition of genocide, which focuses more on political, social, cultural destruction, uh, then the Kazakh famine uh, fits. But I try to actually, uh, in the book, made it, make a kind of broader point uh, about the question of genocide, because, um, you know, in our imagination, I think genocide has taken root in the ulti as the ultimate kind of crime of crimes. You know, people believe that you cannot uh, apply maximum moral condemnation, um, you know, unless you apply the label of genocide. But what I'm trying to say is this event deserves our maximum mo moral condemnation. Uh, what happened to the Kazakhs was unbelievably horrible. Uh, but the fact that it doesn't fit you know, the legal definition of genocide doesn't make it any worthy, less worthy of our attention. And in fact, I think it should make us rethink, you know, why do we place so much emphasis on these cases that fit a very specific definition of genocide? Um, and, you know, we miss really other important cases like the Kazakh case, uh, which, you know, clearly stem from a political process and were also, um, you know, horribly destructive to human life. I want to go back to the issue of nation making because a lot of our discussion has been and in, in kind of especially in your last comments about the destruction of Kazakh way of life. So what was the nation that was produced out of this catastrophe? Yeah, it's um it's it's a really interesting question and I I uh, spent some time on it in the conclusion. So um in some senses the Soviets were successful. Uh, in their nation-making project that, uh, and this is one of the major arguments of my book that I try to show that um, nationality, so prior to the famine, Kazakhs were called Kazakhs, but they didn't think of themselves as a national group. Pastoralism, um, uh, pastoral nomadism was the most important marker of their identity. 
But really what happens over the course of the famine and by its end uh, is the Kazakhs begin to think of themselves as a national group and nationality supplants pastoral nomadism as the most important marker of Kazakh identity. Uh, but in other senses, the Soviets were not successful uh, in their nation-making project. Uh, to give you a, um, an example, um, one is that uh, they believed that clans, clan, uh, a, a clan was something really important to Kazakh's nomadic way of life um, because it was the way that you allocated resources and decided upon migrations and so on. Uh, they wanted to eliminate clans uh, as part of this nation-making project. Uh, they eliminate clans as an economic tie because pastoral nomadism is destroyed as an economic system, uh, but they don't eliminate as a social tie. Uh, clans are transformed uh, by the famine. Uh, their, their function has changed, um, but you can see, for instance, uh, the ways that they continue to, to impact uh, Kazakh life in the decades after the famine. Uh, you will find um, even in the 1950s, there one study found that there are collective farms that were organized by clan um, and, and that Kazakh still practiced um, uh, exogamy, like practices of, of basically taking a, uh, a spouse from another collective farm because you didn't want to marry <laughs> within seven generations. So they would, they would take a, a, a spouse from another, uh, you know, a, a, another clan group, essentially. Um, so in, in the process of implanting um, nationality is the post, in most important marker of identity. The Soviets were successful, um, but they weren't successful in, entirely into in, in terms of making remaking Kazakh uh, Kazakhs as a nation as they wished. And finally, uh, your book has generated a lot of interest in Kazakhstan, uh, thanks to an article you wrote in the Wall Street Journal to promote it, but also just the book coming out. So what kinds of interests and reactions have you gotten from Kazakhstan? And, and what does this say to you about the state of the memory of the famine there? I have been overwhelmed and taken aback by the response from Kazakhstan. It has been incredible, uh, uh, the response to, to this book. So uh, I wrote an op-ed to promote the book in the Wall Street Journal. That op-ed kind of went viral. It was translated into Russian and Kazakh. It went all over the place. Uh, and then what happened is just tons and tons of people began to contact me. Um, ordinary people sent me stories about, about their families. Um, horrible uh, episodes of violence. Um, I must say that generally working on this topic, I've, I've been okay in, in terms of trying to compartmentalize it, but when ordinary people try, you know, write you and tell you these, these unbelievable things, it's, it, it's, it's tough. Um, and uh, members of the Kazakh opposition wrote me, uh, members of the intelligentsia, uh, I think I've been interviewed by something like seven or eight different Kazakh newspapers, uh, and I discovered even that I was the subject of a of a propaganda, or I and the op-ed was the subject of a propaganda video, <laughs> um, which they they kind of um, they elaborated upon what I said in the op-ed and and sort of used it uh, to push the basically to 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 sort of. Um, uh, criticize the, the Nazarbayev regime for its current stance on the famine, which is essentially to allow very limited discussion of it and to sort of downplay uh, the, the issue. Um, but I think what it's revealed to me, most of the, fee some feedback I have been criticized. Uh, I've been told 
you know, of course, all, <laughs> one thing I should back up and say is that very few of these people have read the book. <laughs> you know, they, they just imagined what's in the book. <laughs> um, and uh, some people criticize me. Uh, some people in the Kazakh media have criticized me for being uh, anti-Russian or anti-communist. I think some of this comes down to a deep suspicion of outsiders, uh, particularly Americans. They've argued that I'm using this this this. Uh, book as an, an, as an instrument of geopolitics to drive a wedge between Kazakhstan and Russia. Others have said, you know, this is deeply suspicious that you have published this when you did, uh, because Nazarbayev is getting old and this is, this is, this is <laughs> if only they think, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the timing of when this book was published had nothing to do right, with Right, right. You know, this is what's on your mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of it's actually been very positive. I think people are really happy that this is finally an issue that the West is looking at, uh, that, that uh, this is a conversation that's finally being had in, in the U.S. Um, a lot of people have used the book to kind of critique the Nazarbayev regime for their, their reticence to talk about the famine. And I think um, to, to, to get back to the, the last part of your question, what this reveals about the state of memory, um, I have really been... Um, Taken aback, and it's it's really revealed to me that, to much greater extent um, than I anticipated, that there is this deep curiosity, um, uh, especially among the younger generation, uh, to learn more about this story, which really has not been fully explored uh, in Kazakhstan uh, it, uh, itself. I think it's it's revealed to me in some senses that I, I think you can see Kazakhstan to a great extent as a kind of post-traumatic society. That people are still trying to come to terms uh, with what uh, has happened. Uh, and that is particularly true because this is sort of a forbidden topic in, in Kazakhstan, you know, something that has not been permitted a, a full societal uh, investigation. So, you know, another question, I, I don't know if you can comment on this, but I, I'm really curious. So why hasn't the either the Kazakh state or or whoever in Kazakhstan used the famine as a as a, a point of trauma to build a national identity like you find in, say, Ukraine or Armenia or in Israel and, and other ethnic groups that have formed a, a nation and, and have used the, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, a national trauma as a, as a point for creating national identity. Why is this absent in the Kazakh case? Um, I think, well, I always um, encourage uh, when I speak about the topic of memory, I always encourage anyone listening or anyone out there that this is a great subject for another book <laughs> because uh, the more I got into this, the more I realized what a complicated topic it was and what it, how much it deserved a full-fledged study in its own right. Uh, and, um, you know, there have been many studies of the memory of the Ukrainian famine. We, we really don't have anything on the Kazakh famine. Uh, but I think that it probably boils down to a couple of reasons. One is, uh, I think, well, Nazarbayev himself, he's a Soviet holdover. Uh, you know, he's, he's been in power um, uh, since the collapse. Uh, and I think there is some worry uh, that discussion of the famine may imperil Kazakhstan's relationship with Russia. Uh, and, and Nazarbayev and Putin are very close. Uh, and Kazakhstan has a large Russian population. So I think, I, I think that's, that's part of the story. Uh, I think probably another part of the story, and, and this is... Um, you know, this is something I've discussed uh, with, with Kazakh scholars themselves, is that in Kazakhstan, um, there are still 
a kind of working through about what the Soviet experience meant, a kind of ambivalence about the Soviet past. Uh, I've had some people say to me, well, you know, we were nomads before and now we're a modern society thanks to Soviet rule. So in some senses, for some discussion of the famine might seem in some ways to to kind of taint uh, uh, the Soviet legacy. That was Sarah Cameron, an assistant professor in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union at the University of Maryland. She's the author of The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>